Hi, and welcome to episode 49 of Life with Catherine with my guest, Mika Mokinen. He is a teacher in the Department of Biological Sciences at Simon Fraser University, SFU. He was the guest lecturer at a talk I went to at Science World. Um, It was called The War in Our Genes, and it sparked a curiosity in me. I am thrilled that he is on the show to share this discussion around how our genes have adapted through time. We talk about natural selection, we talk about his career, and so much more. We recorded this at the university, and you'll hear some nearby construction noises just from time to time, so bear with me. (laughs) And um, a big thank you to Mika for indulging my scientific curiosities. Here we go. This is Life with Catherine, sharing stories from my heart with a smile. And I'll even sing once in a while. Together, we'll learn more about the people who inspire me. Come along, pond. Welcome to the show. This is Life with Catherine. I forgot to confirm how to say your name. Ah, oh, it's Mika McConan. <laughs> Mika McConan. <laughs> um, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Um, in science, to me, the very, very basic foundation is who, what, where, when, why, how. And then, ultimately, what do all those questions mean? But science itself, to me, really focuses on how and why, well, how and why, why things happen. And we can look back and we look forward. And I really was, my brain started firing in all directions when I went to a talk at Science World. (laughs) And I really started it planted a seed in my mind, even though I, I look into science a lot on my own. It really planted a seed in my mind of genes. You gave a talk called War in Our Genes, and it really got me going in all kinds of directions. And I actually, I'm going to narrow it down to a few questions. <laughs> but what happened in history? Why? How did it happen? And um, spoiler alert, the Industrial Revolution made a big change. (laughs) So I am going to ask my guest to talk about his career and then a bunch of questions about genes because I think that is one of the most integral pieces to what is happening and what has happened. So let's start with your career. You started in Finland. And then fast forward straight through your thesis. <laughs> so tell me about yeah. that a little bit. So uh, it was uh, well, uh, yeah. I guess um, at the talk it was it was uh, very briefly mentioned, but I can expand on that a little bit. Uh, basically, I grew up here in the Vancouver area and uh, did my first degree, bachelor's degree, actually here at Simon Fraser University, 
And at that point, I wasn't actually even sure that I wanted to continue in a career in science. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of a, an issue a lot of students I, I've noticed now as an instructor make is that they, they kind of put their head down and they just think, okay, I'm going to go through my studies, this is what I need to do, and then I'm going to go and do my master's degree, I'm going to do my PhD. And then I've seen a few people at that stage, if they're you know halfway through the PhD, they are thinking that, oh, should I have done this or not? Um, my experience was that after my bachelor's degree, I wasn't sure, so I, I took some time, took a year to do some research uh, as a technician in a lab, uh, and then really, really got passionate about doing science at that point. Realized that this is this is what I want to do, and so. Uh, luckily, I had this opportunity where I volunteered actually at a scientific conference in Finland. Uh, Amazing! And, and then I, I went there and met the people uh, at the university there, where I ended up actually going to do my, my graduate studies. Uh, and they were so wonderful and inviting, and I thought this this seems like such a positive atmosphere, a place to do my, my research and studies. So the next year. I was there doing my master's degree and I, I continued to do uh, my studies there. I think I was, yeah, master's and PhD combined, it was about seven to eight years. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit tough being far away from family. Luckily, my, my family background is finished, so it wasn't such a huge culture shock for mm -hmm. myself. Uh, but it's, it's a wonderful country to, to live in and uh, to do science in. Their education system there is, is fantastic. Uh, and so. I've been able to incorporate a lot of those practices now into my into my work here uh, in Canada as well. Uh, but it's great because I got to live in Europe for those years, and I still go back very very often and um, got to experience what life is like there, and also the scientific culture there. It's a, it's a little bit different uh, than here in North America, and so that was very interesting to experience that. Uh, and so I I've done my my master's studies and PhD studies on looking at, uh, I guess, sort of the evolution of mammals. And so uh, the, in biology, we often are selecting a study system, some sort of species that we want to focus on. Um, for logistical reasons, you know, you can't always just keep changing with each experiment, the different species. Uh, so you work in a system with a particular animal or plant or whatever organism. And uh, I work with this bank vole, which is uh, one of these small rodents. It's, it looks very much like a mouse, uh, but it's, it's a vole. <laughs> and uh, it's probably the second most common mammal in Europe really? after humans. It's found pretty much everywhere there in, in most habitats. How comforting. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. So, uh, but it's great for scientific purposes because we can find it very easily and, mm -hmm. um, and use it in whatever studies we're doing and and so um, so we were interested in just kind of the evolution and ecology of this species and my, my thesis work focused very much on um, something called sexual conflict which mm -hmm. is this idea that uh, males and females typically have different evolutionary interests and you can kind of see that from um, starting at reproduction you know the size of the egg and the sperm are quite different and then the female typically is the one who gets pregnant and putting all of her resources into producing the offspring and so the female bears this, this very large energetic and physiological cost uh, of, of producing offspring and so there are these there are these fundamental differences between males and females uh, in terms of that and, and 
just different traits that we that we possess. Um, the human hip, for example, being you know one of those traits that that kind of differs between you know the sort of evolutionary pressures differ between males and females uh, with respect to that in childbirth. Uh, and so that was sort of my focus. Um, I thought we we did a we did a you know quite a few interesting studies during that time. Uh, they've they've been written up in peer-reviewed research uh, in journals, and um, I continue to work with my colleagues in Finland on some of that stuff, uh, even from here. The wonderful thing about these days and technology these days is I can sit here in my office, you know, with with some video conferencing app like Skype open and have a conversation. Uh, taking into account time differences, of course, but um, I can I can talk to them uh, just as if we're almost in the same room. So yeah. it hasn't always been that that convenient, but uh, uh, right now I am collaborating with people in different parts of the world on, on that. So uh, so this is sort of where I come from, and and after my PhD uh, work was done, I uh, started this postdoctoral research where I was working both here in, in Vancouver as well as in Finland, and so. I was going back and forth quite a lot, uh, working with different people, and uh, now I'm more based here in Vancouver, but uh, still finding the time to go around uh, to conferences and stuff. So. And teaching and giving talks. And, and teaching, yeah. My, my role these days is largely teaching, um, but I'm, I'm still fitting in some research here and there. And First year uh, students? Second year? Yeah, right now. <laughs> this yeah this this previous year it's been a lot of first year uh, students. Um, currently this semester I'm teaching um, this introductory biology for kind of uh, non majors biologists or mm -hmm. it's it's sort of the, uh, the very very introductory biology class for people who haven't taken science courses before. So that's been a really interesting experience because I I've learned and started to appreciate you know where students. Um, where their thinking is on science in general because they haven't had much lab experience, for example. I, I always ask at the beginning of every every course I teach in this uh, first year, I ask for a show of hands for who's taken a science course or been in a lab before and like maybe just a few people put up their hands. So wow. uh, so it is. it has been very enlightening to, to work with students. And, you got a clean slate. Uh, yeah, exactly. So to to <laughs> no that, bad habits to correct. Yeah, exactly. No bad habits, but, but also we have to be a bit careful and not assume that mm -hmm. they know how to handle everything properly. Mm -hmm. We've, we've had, you know, to be careful with that. But yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's been, I, I personally just love and enjoy teaching. Um, you know, being able to inspire students and having students come to me afterwards and say that, you know, they weren't thinking about biology, but now they really Enjoyed the course so much that they want to go into biology and so you know being able to, to arm these students with sort of the critical thinking skills that that I think our society desperately needs mm -hmm. especially in this time and age when you you know you hear this you know these alternative facts that people mm -hmm. talk about and there's no such thing as alternative facts it's it's there are facts and there are you know things that are not facts and so and apparently know, there's something called fact checking I don't know if people have right, heard of it. Right, <laughs> Peer-reviewed. Yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of the time, you know, we can avoid some of these controversies and issues mm -hmm. if people could actually evaluate evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to form their own opinions and not have politicians tell them mm -hmm. how to think, right? So I think advertising permeating um, seamlessly into um, all media mm -hmm. has really 
clouded what is advertising and what is theory and what is fact. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really created a blur that could be corrected. I'm optimistic, but it really is up to people to study, to learn, Mm -hmm. to ask questions, to really... It comes down to society and humans. They have to be responsible for what they think. Critical thinking comes down to it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, if I can, if I can help the students with with attaining those skills in some way, I'm, you know, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> More than happy. So. Uh, okay, let's talk about genes. Sure. They have evolved through time, in drastic ways. Um, I was saying to, and before the podcast, I already forgot, it's Micah, right? Mika. Mika. Oh, okay. okay. Um, My vulnerability (laughs) shows Mika. Okay. Natural selection includes survival of the fittest. But what does that even mean? Survival of the fittest, we can be fit mentally and physically, and we can also the leaders of the fittest groups that are leading everyone can have humanity and compassion. So survival of the fittest can also include caring for the most vulnerable in society, caring for what is happening socially, culturally, within their values. So I find survival of the fittest to be a very broad term, no surprise, and very philosophical. But I guess your talk really got me thinking about that. And, uh, yeah, so my brain went haywire. So why don't you talk about genes through time? That's a vague question. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, what can I say about that? Well, in the context of, of human evolution, I've, well, talking about natural selection, I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with the term survival of the fittest. Darwin actually wasn't the one uh, oh. who coined that term. Um, but it has been applied to his theory of natural selection. <laughs> checking. <laughs> yeah, I've, 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 I've always been a little bit hesitant about that term because fitness, like evolutionary fitness, when we talk about that, it's, it's, it is always a product of a time and place, right? And so individuals are always being shaped by their environment. Mm-hmm. And so the environment that a population experiences, for example, here in Vancouver, whether it's humans or some species of bird, that's going to differ drastically from the environment, for example, uh, in, in northern Africa. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so the selection pressures that are acting on those individuals are going to be possibly quite different. And so the fitness, or at least those genes that confer a fitness advantage in one environment, might not be the most suitable for the other environment. Mm-hmm. And so it is very context-dependent. And so for me, when I think about it, it's not that there's always just a, like a global or a universal optimum that, that uh, populations or individuals are being selected towards. It is something that is very much uh, a product of the immediate environment that mm. those individuals are found in. And so, so in the context of, of humans, um, it's been very interesting because uh, something that I, I was talking about in my, in my talk at Science World is this idea of environmental mismatch. And if we accept the evidence that indicates that humans evolved initially in Africa and then spread out uh, in terms of modern humans out of Africa, 
the environment that, that modern humans encounter in those, in those early years uh, is quite different than what we find now. For example, you know, in North America, in, uh, in Europe, Asia, everywhere outside of Africa, basically. And so, especially when you consider, you know, in the context of, of all these technological and cultural innovations that we've had, um, you know, the Western diet, all of these things are things that our ancestors did not encounter in, in Africa in those times. And so we have this, this tremendous mismatch with where our species initially evolved uh, and where we are now. And that, that can have implications on our health, for example. Um, people have been arguing that a lot of these, these conditions that we suffer from, uh, even like some of these mental health disorders, uh, are a product of this environmental mismatch because you know, things like depression, anxiety, those things can be brought on by you know, packing people into really dense areas mm -hmm. and, and not having them um, in that environment that we evolved in. You know, um, Moving away from your families moving away from our families, being more socially isolated, right? Because the ancestral environment, we had these small villages of 100 to 150 people where you knew everybody, a lot of them were your relatives, uh, it wasn't, you weren't packed in like sardines in a tin can. Uh, and, uh, and then when we, yeah, we had that transition uh, from hunter-gatherers to, to these, um, you know, more settled uh, you know, populations with, with animal husbandry and domestication of, of animals, farms um, you know those practices started to change we could we you know we started to march towards building these larger and larger cities and then that allowed humans to increase uh, their densities and so again we're, we're modifying our environment tremendously uh, or it has been modified tremendously from, from where we were um, those thousands of years ago uh, so so in the context of human health I think that's been uh, a very important uh, issue that, that, that humans have, have gone through or, or events that humans have gone through um, to get where we are now. And I think a lot of these underlying you know, health concerns that, that our society is facing, those can be you know, traced back. The root of that, I think, is in the fact that we are not living in the environments that we evolved in. And we're, uh, humans are still evolving. That's the thing is that there have been studies coming out in the last couple of decades that, that have shown that there has been adaptation in, in, uh, in certain characteristics, in, even in modern humans. So just because we have a large global population that, that is intermixing all the time, it, it still there, there are indications that we are evolving. So not maybe in the same, uh, same way as we did in hunter-gatherer times, but uh, still it seems like that our population is, is changing. So. How far do humans go back? Well. Uh, modern humans, um, we go back quite a few years. Um, I think if we're talking about Homo sapiens, like our species, uh, those are going back uh, a couple of hundred thousand years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do have these, these transitional uh, hominids um, that, that we're related to, such as Neanderthals, um, Homo erectus being another important one. Uh, those are going back a couple of million years, right? Uh, and these, these, all of these species are the ones that had kind of larger brains. Uh, and so um, going earlier or, or further back uh, than two million years, you had uh, other hominid species, which uh, 
we have less evidence of them because we have, in most cases, you know, fragments of bones, not not perfectly complete skeletons of these. I mean, it's hard to preserve a full skeleton for millions and millions of years. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so the fossil record, the further we back, further back we go, is it's a little bit more spotty. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we can go back to all the way back to when bipedalism evolved. Um, somewhere between four and five million years ago and so um, you know we have it's funny because we keep finding all of these different species of humans and uh, we had for example uh, more recently we had these uh, this species uh, in Southeast Asia on the island of Flores this Homo floresiensis uh, people refer to it as the hobbit oh it's right this really short human uh, so that that has been found uh, in the last couple of decades um, there's also a really interesting discovery down in uh, Africa, in um, South Africa. This uh, Homo Naledi, uh, which actually we have a connection here at Simon Fraser. One of the grad students was uh, one of the first people into that cave where the, the fossils were discovered. Wow. Um, yeah, it's actually that, that's a whole Tell me they interesting story. It. <laughs> uh, I think they've made some documentaries. I haven't okay. seen it, but I've heard heard discussion of it. It, it is actually just an aside, it's a really interesting story because um, they had this cave system that, that descended pretty far underground and uh, to get into this chamber where all these fossils were, it was a very small opening and they couldn't make it any really any bigger. Uh, and so they needed very small people or people small enough to fit through this opening. And so somebody such as myself would be too big. And so they put out a call, international call for, for anthropologists or archeologists, anybody who's you know, of a certain size <laughs> that would be interested, yeah. And so, so this Marina from, from SFU, she, uh, she, she answered the call and they, they hired her and uh, she was one of the first people in. And it was the, the space, like I saw pictures of, you know, how big this was. You basically had to kind of, kind of orient your body so that you did this kind of Superman pose where your one arm was lifted so you basically would narrow your shoulders so you could fit through this tiny little hole, but then once you got into the big chamber, it was it, it opened up. Um, but it very interesting how they how they uh, you know discovered thousands of uh, fossil specimens there and were able to show this uh, this kind of transitional form. This Homo naledi it had some some modern characteristics, but then it had some features that were also a little bit more ancestral. Like some of its uh, appendages had features that that looked a little bit more um, like some of these earlier. Uh, species and so yeah just things like that that just you know even just in the last couple of years uh, people have been discovering these things so uh, there may be more species that we, we discover that would be amazing so, aliens yeah. please <laughs> <laughs> I find it amusing yeah. sorry yeah. <laughs> um, there's two pieces that that jumped out at me from your well, a lot from the talk which mm -hmm. the skull sizes was interesting and then the move to bipedalism so you, can you talk about both those things yeah so so what's interesting about the skulls um, and he well, brought them yeah I brought some <laughs> specimens uh, the, the interesting thing is that if you look at the the other great apes uh, gorillas chimpanzees orangutans um, so if you look at the chimpanzee skull, for example, you look at uh, a fetal skull of a chimpanzee, or even just a, just a juvenile skull, uh, and you, you compare it to a human skull, an infant uh, skull, 
it's it's very indistinguishable which one is which. I think I asked the audience, you know, which was the chimpanzee, which was the human, and I think sixty percent said that the chimp skull was the human. Like yeah. most people, God, you know, were. It was uncanny how yeah. how similar it was. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that uh, if you look at the adult human skull, it doesn't actually differ that much from the, the juvenile or the fetal skull of humans. Uh, we actually retain a lot of these juvenile characteristics in, in our adult form of our skull. So, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the chimpanzee adult skull, though, uh, the thing that strikes uh, that immediately jumps out is that uh, the, um, the kind of jaw and nose area becomes very prognathous, it, it kind of extends out more, and so that's that's a development that happens mm-hmm. as the as the chimpanzee grows older. And so humans, we, we basically kind of stop that, we, we were like, okay, this is going to be how the skull is shaped, mm-hmm. and, and we don't have that same type of development mm-hmm. of our skull, the, the chimpanzees, who we share, almost was it 94-95% of our, our genes with them. That's one fundamental difference between us and them um, in terms of uh, our, our skeletal features. And so that was, you know, something that is very interesting in humans. And, um, you know, I, I'm no expert on, on, um, on skull evolution or brain evolution, but, uh, but uh, there have been some, some interesting uh, ideas about how we evolve these larger brains in terms of certain genes and, and also some selection pressures. That contributed to that, but uh, but what is really interesting about humans and, and this this you know switch to bipedalism because you can look at the other great apes and see that some of them are walking on four limbs, some of them are kind of facultative bipedal, so that they'll often be walking on two you know their their legs, but then they'll be using their their four limbs as well. Um, but humans really we switch to this bipedal lifestyle. There's that shift, and so we you know. They talk about us descending from the trees, so you know our ancestors were living more in the canopy, I guess, uh, in earlier times. And now, when we switch to bipedalism, we're pretty much exclusively on the ground, and uh, that had several really interesting implications. Because, um, for example, our spine—if you look at our spine—and I think I asked pretty much everybody put up their hand when I asked, you know, who's had back problems, yes. you know. I think everybody at some point in their life experiences it. Um, uh, I've heard, you know, I've heard some accounts by anthropologists talk about how, uh, you know, the, the human form is held together by duct tape or something like that. It's it's really not uh, not ideal. If somebody was trying to design uh, a good organism in terms of its, you know, skeleton, certainly would not be the form that humans have taken. Um, that curved spine introduces, uh, you know, issues. And it, but what people have to understand is that we are dealing with evolutionary constraints, and so we have to think where our ancestors came from and, and how, you know, their bodies were. And it's not that you know humans started with a blank slate. We we came from these these you know ancestors that were working on walking on four limbs, and so when we switched to this bipedal lifestyle, we had to recenter our gravity. And so that involved our backs attaining that S curvature to it so that we could, you know, center our gravity so we can walk on two limbs rather than four limbs. If you look at some of the other great apes, you can see that they have this nice smooth curve to their spine. They don't have that same S curve to it. Uh, The other other implication uh, is that uh, the hips 
to facilitate this uh, new centering of gravity, the hips had to shift a little bit and also became a bit more narrow. And so the implication uh, for humans, at least for human health, is that uh, it, it impacted childbirth mm -hmm. in that having more narrow hips made it more difficult for the, 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 the offspring to, to pass through the birth canal. And in modern times, I know it's, it's I mean, it, it, it is still very challenging. I mean, I have mm -hmm. two young daughters. I, I witnessed their births. I know <laughs> how challenging it is. Um, but we luckily have these modern interventions that can be taken if we have to, you know, if there's any uh, major complications or issues, we can, you know, perform cesarean sections, for example, mm -hmm. and, and the child can be born that way. Uh, in older times, that was a little bit more difficult, um, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago. It was, uh, you know, a bit of an issue with childbirth. A lot of women died during childbirth. Mm -hmm. And this, this really goes back to that idea of the hips uh, becoming more narrow. And so, you know, at the same time as our head was getting larger, larger brains, uh, the hips were getting more narrow. And so that makes that, that fit of that, of that offspring being born uh, very, very challenging to, to fit through there. If you compare it to, to chimpanzees, for example, they can give birth very effortless. Well, there's some effort involved, but uh, there isn't the same type of um, constriction or, or difficulty mm -hmm. birthing because the fetus or the, the I guess the, the newborn offspring is, is much smaller relative to the opening. And so that is also because chimpanzees don't have such narrow hips relative to their body size as, as humans do. And so that was one of these unfortunate implications of uh, learning to, or starting to walk on, on two legs for humans. And so, you know, we can, we can, you know, use evolutionary principles and look at a lot of these health, health concerns that we have these days and, and sort of look at what are those, you know, root causes of some of these issues. And so, you know, we can, we can see that, okay, some of these issues related to birth are because of, you know, our evolutionary past. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, can you talk about genes? I'm completely blank on the slides that you had. I was so engrossed in this. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about the consequences of replacing cells in gene editing, but there was so much more involved in that as well. Yeah, well, I, I was talking a little bit about how we can use genes uh, to um, sort of trace patterns of human evolution and, and so what uh, what's really interesting is that we can look at genes so we have these mitochondrial genes which uh, to get a little technical here our cells have these little structures called mitochondria which is what provides us the, the energy the power for all of our functions and so these mitochondria they have their own little set of genes in them that are separate from this this these nuclear genes that we get from both mom and dad Mitochondria, those genes just come from the mom. Mm. And so uh, we can use these genes in both the mitochondria and the nucleus of the cell, and we can actually start to do, you know, very detailed analyses and look at, you know, how far back in time are all humans related. And so we can essentially use, the, you know, models using kind of a constant rate of mutation and use these uh, sophisticated techniques with computers to analyze different gene sequences from you know people from around the world 
and uh, we can use this you know constant rate of change basically over time and estimate okay these two sequences for example are you know so different from one another how far back in time do we have to go that they are going to be the same given this constant rate of change over that time and uh, they've you know, they've estimated this using these mitochondrial genes, which again just come from the mother, and uh, they can they can estimate that we, we kind of all through the maternal line, because you have to look at that through the maternal line, uh, we all descend from the same female, and so people call this female mitochondrial Eve. This is not the same as the biblical Eve. This is right. <laughs> you know quite different, <laughs> but uh, but mitochondrial Eve uh, they call her that uh, because. Everybody alive today is descending from this this one female that was alive around 100,000 to 230,000 years ago. Um, doesn't mean that she was the only female alive. This this is I think the thing that trips up, especially some of my students in the classes. They think, oh, there's just one male and female at the beginning. Doesn't mean that. It just means that those other females that were alive at the time, their their lineages have all died out uh, over time. Uh, and so everybody alive today descends from this one female. Similarly, we can look at the Y chromosome uh, because that always descends patrilineally through the, through the males. And we can see that, okay, uh, everybody descends from the same, same individual, same male. We call this Y chromosomal Adam, who is alive now. The re most recent estimates put it about 160,000 to, to about 300,000 years ago. So. It's, it's very likely that they lived at different times, so it's not like there is one male and female, you <laughs> yes. know, living in, you know, some garden somewhere, uh, at least biologically speaking. Yes. Um, but, uh, but it's really interesting, you know, what, what our tools allow us to, to look at uh, and, and, and see, because uh, we can, you know, we can understand sort of how a lot of these populations, you know, have, have evolved over time just by focusing on the kind of molecular side of things, looking at the genes themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but but genetically, I, I can't remember what the original question was. <laughs> Just talking about genes in general. Genes in general, yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's a very yeah. vague question. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, what's, what's, what's interesting, what's interesting, I think, about, um, uh, about, about genes is that we can, you know, um, well, you know, we use genes for, you know, paternity analyses, you know, um, not just in humans, but across, you know, all these different study organisms. And what's, what's really great is that we can use a lot of these model organisms, such as mice and fruit flies. I know a lot of people like to criticize, you know, studies when they see, you know, why are people studying fruit flies? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because they, they have um, not exactly the same kind of genetic system, but they have like this XY chromosome uh, system which is analogous to, to humans and so we can actually do some genetic studies and understand some of these basic genetic principles um, you know using a model organism like Drosophila fruit fly um, uh, to understand better what's happening in humans and I guess the the goal of biology is not to just study other organisms to, to understand what's happening in humans I mean that's certainly one of the, the nice benefits of it um, but uh, one of the one of the great uh, I guess one of the great uh, features of using things like mice, fruit flies, and, and other systems is that we we gain some more insights into you know human biology and human mm -hmm. evolution. Um, 
indirectly. So, so you know, my system going back to my PhD studies, I studied this bank bowl, this small rodent, but it's a mammal. So a lot of the genes are going to be conserved in you know these rodents, uh, you know, compared to to humans. Like we have quite a bit of overlap. There isn't you know the same level of overlap as as chimpanzees, mm -hmm. but uh, but a lot of these genes are going to be. Uh, still quite similar because you know we have to think what are the genes that were in the ancestors and you know way back when the first mammals were around during the time of dinosaurs and then after that certainly there was some diversification of species but those genes that <laughs> were you know yeah those genes that were in those initial mammals uh, back back in prehistoric times those are a lot of those have been conserved and so we have things like oxytocin that's something I've mm -hmm. been looking at it in my in my research um, you know oxytocin being this really you know people call that the love hormone mm -hmm. um, but but the underlying genes behind it are very interesting because you can see that that at least the the, the genes associated with the receptors uh, for, for accepting the hormones signal uh, those genes have been anciently conserved so we see we see those across all the mammals pretty much in almost the same form uh, but we also see this gene in very, very similar forms, you know, in everything from fish to birds to even like some, some insects. And so in some cases, you know, when those genes are, you know, when they arose very early on in, in the evolution of life, they just kind of descend to all the ancestors, all the descendants. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so what's really cool is you can, you know, take genes because of this universality of this genetic code. You can take genes from one organism and insert them into the into the other organism, and it'll be functional. It'll it'll actually work. And so things like you've probably heard about, you know, these glowing bunnies mm -hmm. in the news, right? So they've taken genes for this bioluminescence from one species and inserted it into the genome of of the of the lagomorph of the of the rabbit, and it works. It makes them glow, right? And so that speaks to how universal the, the genetic code is. Now, that kind of touches upon this maybe broader question about starting to, you know, play with these new technologies mm -hmm. because... And know, that's the DNA, right? Yeah, DNA and, you know, it's, it goes back to this philosophical question of just because we can doesn't mean we should, mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of people have been very eager to start using this, for example, this CRISPR technology, which allows us to very specifically edit genomes. Mm -hmm. And genes, and uh, a lot of people are, you know, looking at that now as a solution to a lot of these genetic disorders that we have. Um, and some people have suggested, well, we should be using that technology even to improve, quote unquote, our species. And I think that that's very dangerous. And I think I just briefly made that point in my talk mm -hmm. that I find it a very, very, very dangerous thing to consider. At this point in time, like there was that scientist, uh, I believe in Hong Kong, somewhere in China, where he was, uh, he was, I guess, doing some sort of genetic manipulation, trying to confer HIV resistance mm -hmm. to some babies through this gene editing technique. Um, and basically, I, from what I understand, I'm not fully up to speed on the, on the controversy but uh, from what I understand he seemed to circumvent perhaps some some ethical uh, considerations there mm -hmm. and so 
announced that he had done it after he had done it. And that was met with international condemnation from the research community uh, that that had happened. Uh, because I think most scientists understand and realize that uh, it is it is very dangerous to start manipulating genes when we don't understand what all these genes are doing because genes they often have multiple effects uh, so you can have a gene that might affect some you know structural feature but then it might also have some effect on you know metabolism for example mm -hmm. and so so genes they 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 often have they're called pleiotropic effects uh, and so we often don't understand what those are necessarily and so if we go to start manipulate a gene thinking we can you know cure this condition let's cure autism cure. yeah yeah that's that's or, a bit of a kind of words not, yeah, not cure. yeah let's remove the gene that is linked to autism yeah that can be that can be a very very tricky proposition but uh, but yeah if, if we're if we're trying to you know edit a gene for some something that we want to to cure or fix uh, it might actually have a beneficial role that we are not aware of that then we're altering and possibly then causing something else to go wrong mm -hmm. or be problematic. Um, because the thing that we're finding is that there are these interesting trade-offs uh, that, that, at least in the evolutionary sense, you know, we can, we can talk about aging, for example. Um, one, of these, one of these ideas about aging, why we age, because you know, it's this really interesting evolutionary paradox of why do organisms age? Because in an evolutionary sense, if an individual is able to live indefinitely and keep producing offspring, then it's getting more of its genes into, into the descendants, into the population, than, than some individual who has a fixed reproductive lifespan and then, and then dies. Uh, so why don't we all just live indefinitely why aren't we all immortal because you can look across pretty much all species they age and they die and so what is going on and so one of these these ideas of aging is that there is this trade-off and so that you have this benefit earlier in life this sort of benefit in reproduction that trades off later in life which is then this this cost of aging so our body systems start to kind of break down our metabolism becomes less efficient our hormone systems aren't working as, as optimally as they could, and so that, that contributes to this this aging process. I tried desperately not to shout out during your presentation. <laughs> I was like, but isn't entropy the answer? Why we age? Because as soon as something forms, it's automatically breaking down, whether it's minuscule amounts at a time. And I was like, don't bring it up, don't bring it up. <laughs> or is that well, an inanimate thing? I don't know. See, I don't my know. mind is going. Yeah, yeah, I, I, don't, I, yeah, I think it's very hard to it's very hard to think about that in a biological evolutionary context because I think that there is this there has been this natural I don't know I, you can kind of look at it as like transitions in in life that there's been this tendency to increase complexity, right? Mm -hmm. From like you know basic know proto molecules proto cells to you know proper cells to tissues and, and then simple organisms multicellular organisms populations and so so the tendency of life seems to be to to increase in complexity and so I don't understand if if 
we are talking about living systems, living organisms, if there is, I guess, which, which pressure is, is more, whether it's to kind of break down or to, to increase in complexity and, and persist. So I, yeah, I, it's, it could be, it could very well be, but, <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, is that, um, yeah, it might be through genetic manipulation eventually that we mm -hmm. attain much, much longer lifespans. I mean, there's no reason to think that humans can't live actually much, much longer lifespans. Like, you know, I've, I've talked with colleagues that, that think that, you know, modern humans as we are today with, with a little bit of, you know, technological help, there's no reason to think that we can't extend our lifespans by, you know, decades or even, you know, centuries. But uh, the question is, <laughs> um, do we want to go down that rabbit hole and start, you know, start tinkering with the genes before we mm -hmm. go? Uh, and how much quality of life would be? Or is it just yeah. we're going to stay at this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, ethically, I... I have to say I'm not I'm not very comfortable with the idea of editing you know our genes at this point because we we still don't I would say we still know less than than what we know mm -hmm. and so um, you know there's more that we don't know than what we know and so once we you know maybe in the future have, mm -hmm. have learned more about how proven peer-reviewed research yeah exactly yeah, and, and really use this objective methodology to, to get this information. Then, you know, we might be in a position to to start considering that uh, very slowly. But, I mean, at this point, I think we're still fairly far away from... Unless you're a billionaire. Unless you're a billionaire, yeah, <laughs> I think that was yeah. your joke, too. I don't know if I stole it. <laughs> yeah, it could be, it could be, yeah, yeah. I mean... Eventually, that's probably how it will go. The technology, that's usually, you know, if you think about, you know, sequencing the genome, actually, it's, um, it costs billions of dollars to, to, to sequence the first human genome. And now, I think, you know, you can maybe at a little bit lower resolution, but you can, you know, send your DNA off to one of these companies yeah. and, you know, for a few hundred bucks, you know, get your genome sequenced and get all this information. So the cost does come down, and actually, in research, um, has now become in recent times somewhat affordable for researchers to start sequencing genomes of their study individuals mm -hmm. so I think that's sort of in the pipeline that we're going to see and, and also like for, for humans the implication is that we're, we're kind of entering this new era of personalized medicine so that it's maybe not so common these days yet but I think in the coming decades where you know pretty much everybody will probably get their genomes sequenced just a standard practice and we'll be able to, you know, fashion treatments for a variety of conditions based on that individual's genes. <coughs> for example, you know, cancer is something that once it takes hold, those cancer cells, they're mutating. And, and so that's part of the reason why it becomes very difficult to treat cancer uh, or certain types of cancer is because they undergo, you know, multiple mutations. And, and so you have this drug resistance that can you know, take hold. And so you might manage to kill off some of those you know, cells, cancer cells that are susceptible to the, to the drugs. Uh, but then you're just creating this environment where 
know, those, those resistant cell lines are now able to thrive. Less competition, they can, they can now continue living, they don't have to, you know, they're not going to die off with more application of that, of that uh, drug. So, yeah, I think, I think personalized medicine will help us, I think, to, to more effectively treat a lot of these conditions, not just cancer, but, but a variety of things once we can actually understand what versions of genes do people have for certain conditions. Uh, and then we can, you know, personalize the medicine more. Well, you were saying, yeah, it's an interesting slide about this, that the cancer cell doesn't, it's not a carbon copy of, I'm using hand quotes, a carbon copy of the initial cell, and then there's now 20 identical cells. It's every time it splits off and mutates, if you, whatever word you want to use, um, it is different, and that is where some of the biggest troubles are because the the direct medicine, in theory, whatever they're treating, is aimed at the initial, and that's where it can get away from from yeah the treatment. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, I think. It's important for us to understand, you know, how a lot of these processes function, such as cancer, because you have, like you said, um, you have these modifications of the the cell lines, the cancerous cell lines, and and so for something like cancer, you know, I think that one day it's very conceivable that we can, you know, reasonably cure certain types of cancer at, at a fairly good rate once we understand. How to do that? And it's going to involve, you know, sequencing those those different cancerous cell lines mm -hmm. and and understanding how are these different and what can we do to. Uh, <laughs> I do that yeah. all the time. Sorry, my pen went for a ride again. It's, okay. <laughs> it's a habit. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so so you know, I think it it just all goes back to you know having this technology available to us and using it uh, to our benefit in an ethical moral way mm -hmm. and uh, I think you know I mean philosophically that's also maybe another big can of worms mm -hmm. that um, think about evolutionary biology that I think sometimes people people have an issue with or, or maybe make the mistake about is that they they kind of use it for kind of some sort of moral justification just because something is you know that means this other thing is not okay or not moral. Uh, think about evolutionary biology and think about evolution in general. Is that it doesn't it doesn't really concern itself, or I guess I should say, speak specifically about evolution. It's not concerned so much with you know morality. At the at the most base level, evolution when it's happening, it's it's this idea that, or I should say, actually natural selection evolution by natural selection. Um, it is just this, this idea that these genes, they're trying to propagate themselves. And so whatever strategy allows them to propagate themselves, that's, you know, whatever strategy allows them to propagate themselves in, in higher proportions relative to the other genes in the population, mm -hmm. uh, those strategies then are going to be what are kind of selective, right? So that's how you get a lot of these, um, you know, you can, I mean, going back to humans, you can get things like, you know, start to understand things like rape, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, morally, it's it's repugnant, it's horrible, it's terrible, but a strategy like that, if you want to call it a strategy, yeah. uh, in an evolutionary sense, it persists because, you know, those individuals that practice it, on average, traditionally have, have passed on their genes mm -hmm. in higher proportions as a result of that. 
morally it's terrible, but mm -hmm. you know, um, evolutionarily, it does likely have some sort of fitness benefit. It has per it has it. persisted through time. Yeah, yeah, but. The great thing and about it's not region specific. No, it's, it's not region. human specific. It is, yeah. But the but you know one wonderful aspect of humans is that we have this you know moral system, this moral code that you know even though we have some of these some of these practices that humans do that are terrible, uh, we have this moral code that you know whether you're in Canada, whether you're in you know Egypt, whether you're in Norway, wherever you are in the world, we understand that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of have this, you know, universal understanding of what's right and what's wrong. There are some, there are some, you know, gray areas that maybe differ between mm -hmm. certain countries for certain things, but... Even uh, if it doesn't leave our DNA, mm -hmm. um, we can societally shame it or, or yeah. push it out of the bounds of norm. Right. Right. I don't know how to say that right. Yeah. Please no, forgive I think, me. I think, no, <laughs> I think that it, it makes sense, yeah. So we can, you know, we we can police ourselves. And we yes. have that. We have that cognitive ability to, to also understand what is right and what's wrong so that we can, you know, as humans, we can, you know, think through the moral implications mm -hmm. of doing something. You know, mm -hmm. if I take this $10, you know, from my from my sister... For my benefit, well, I might be able to buy something with that ten dollars, but that means that she won't be able to. And I, you know, as a human, I can think through that, uh, those different possibilities, and understand that that would negatively affect her. It's this idea of theory of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a bit of debate, you know, if other animals have that right now, mm -hmm. um, and there's maybe some evidence that that chimpanzees have some form of it, and yeah. maybe possibly a couple of bird species, but. Um, but so far, it seems to be fairly constrained to humans. Mm -hmm. And so we have this, this ability to think through our actions. And, uh, well, it's something that's come from having a larger brain, I mm -hmm. guess. And so, critical thinking. And critical thinking, yeah. So How are we doing for time? Uh, we're okay. We're yeah. okay? Yeah, okay. another five, five okay. minutes or so. Yeah. Um, I have a few questions. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about date, uh, the dating of fossils. We can talk about Lucy. Mm -hmm. We can talk about any other studies or advances that catch your attention. Mm -hmm. And I love the dinosaur story. <laughs> oh, yes, talking just, about that. I know the... I'm jumping around. It yeah. really blew my mind to the point that sometimes we really don't understand adaptations. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like... The placebo effect to me like it's so mind-blowing mm -hmm. mm -hmm. but it's so simple too and I just yeah. think about how exciting that stuff like that is that we don't know and you're never gonna know so go ahead yeah well with so with, any of those things yeah I mean, well, with, <laughs> with adaptations I mean I, as an evolutionary biologist I can I can speak to that um, it's it's really interesting idea that natural selection uh, it's always well people have this idea that natural selection adapts population of individuals to their environment right and so that's right yeah. so natural selection is is trying to you know eventually shift those gene frequencies towards that more optimal level. survival yeah but uh, there's also this possibility for maladaptation and so that kind of goes back to this point I was making earlier about having these pleiotropic effects so genes have multiple effects right 
And so, for example, in the work that I was doing and have been doing uh, with my PhD studies looking at this idea of sexual conflict, uh, you have genes that can be, you know, uh, you know, these genes as they descend through the generations might be a mom, then goes into a son, goes into son of that son, and then maybe into a daughter. And so it's jumping, you know, once in a while between the sexes. So sometimes that gene can be found in a male, sometimes in a female. And so this class of genes that I've been interested in, they're called these sexually antagonistic genes. And so the idea is that uh, the, the fitness associated with these genes is, is very context dependent. And so these genes might be beneficial for females, but if those genes are in males, uh, it would be very costly, very mm. bad for them. And so I think I use this example of the human hip to sort of relate it that, you know, you have these pressures, right? Hunter-gatherer times, you know, we had this shift to more narrow hips also for, for running purposes. It's, you know, males who are traditionally the hunters, uh, they, you know, having more narrow hips, they didn't have to give birth to children, so mm -hmm. more narrow hips. Uh, whereas females giving birth, um, having wider hips to facilitate that were more beneficial. So you had perhaps this kind of tug of war over having more wider or more narrow hips in hunter-gatherer times. And so those genes would be undergoing this sort of evolutionary tug of war. And so that's, that's kind of one, one human-related example that we have, you know, we've, we've found now a variety of, of genes impacted by this type of tug of war dynamic. And so there is this, you know, context-specific nature of where those genes are found, if they're found in a male or female. And that creates, that can create maladaptations. Mm -hmm. So even though it might be beneficial for some of the individuals, such as females, for example, uh, it might not be very good for, for males. And so you can get these sort of, you know, you know, certain traits, certain characteristics in humans getting pulled along, not just through this kind of sexual conflict dynamic, but, um, you know, you have these, you know, pleiotropic effects, you know, certain traits get pulled along when mm -hmm. something else gets selected. And so those other traits might not be very good for us health-wise, uh, yet they persist. And so, you know, um, you know, uh, it's been argued schizophrenia, autism, a lot of these, you know, bipolar, depression, uh, these are possibly also mediated by this kind of mechanism that they, the reason they persist is because of know kind of getting pulled along that you know it's beneficial in in females for example but not so good in males or, or vice versa and so you get this you know possibility that we are not always going to be evolving towards better health mm -hmm. because you have these um, you have these dynamics where there is this tug of war happening between different traits different genes um, or between males and females for example so, so yeah. So there's that that possibility for for adaptation. Um, but you know, the human form in general. You know, I talked about the, the spine, the hip, uh, and we have that laryngeal nerve that that I mentioned about how uh, it's very interesting how in humans it it travels from the brain down, it loops around the aorta of the heart, and then travels up to the larynx, which seems a very inefficient uh, route to take if it could just go from the brain right to the larynx. Yeah. Avoid going down the neck. Uh, and, and I think I was showing about the supersaurus dinosaur, how it's 
we now estimate that you know it was very likely the same scenario in the dinosaurs because we see it also in birds who mm -hmm. are the descendants of dinosaurs um, the same feature looping around the heart and so in Supersaurus that nerve would have been 30 meters long which which is just <laughs> staggering mind blowing it I came mean, all the way down yeah I mean we see it to this day with giraffes giraffes have the same yeah. feature where it goes all the way down their neck loops around their heart and goes up and goes back up uh, yeah and so the reason for that of course is this this idea I touched on earlier about these evolutionary constraints because going back to our distant distant ancestors these these uh, these you know fish-like ancestors uh, before they evolved a neck you know if you look at the fish body plan you know it's a very efficient route where it takes it from the brain to the gill arches yeah. the gills and through time through evolutionary modifications you know those descendants they evolved necks and those gill arches were modified into other structures in the circulatory system and in, in the body and so it's just that nerve got trapped on the wrong side of the circulatory system and then as the neck kept growing and growing and growing it just had to keep stretching and stretching and stretching to go along with it so that's amazing so yeah so that's this this idea that you know not everything always goes <laughs> very well I remember uh, looking at this slide so, this what 30 meters yeah, long yeah yeah so yeah. yeah so you know our bodies are are constantly constrained by what came before mm -hmm. I guess and so that's I guess the main message of you know what I've been talking about is that um, you know, you know, we're we're nowhere near perfect beings biologically, but somehow uh, somehow we make it work. <laughs> so let's wrap it up here. Okay. Well, there's a billion other things, but that's the beauty of science. Yes. Is there's always going to be other things? Is there? Uh, let's wrap it up with: Is there a study or a couple studies that are catching your eye or or? Couple of studies, Ooh. or just anything like yeah. if, um, yeah. if, what would you like to leave people on thinking about? Um, that there's always things to learn, or yeah, I think I think the main thing, the main message I would I would like to impart on people is, is you know, just always to try to seek out the facts and and not just believe what, you know, what what people tell them. Mm. And the be, studies are, are online. Yeah, a lot yeah. of them. And uh, you know, there's been this huge push in the scientific community to make uh, research more uh, publicly accessible, and and now it's actually a condition for quite a few different uh, grants and you know, you know, yeah, research grants that people have to make their research available for the public. Uh, and so, yeah, go out, seek out that that literature if you're if you're interested in something. You know, do some digging online because it's possible to find that mm -hmm. literature. And you know, I think the more scientifically literate our population is, I think the better our society functions. I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess that's that's my imparting <laughs> thought. I guess. <laughs> thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. It was fascinating, and yeah. thank you for the talk. I. Uh... Yeah, my mind is still having a billion questions, and that is like. A great gift. Well, thank you very much. I, yeah, I enjoyed this very much. And thank you. Any, anything I can ever help with, I'm happy to answer. <laughs> no problem. I, I'll make a list of questions. All right, All right, just give me one second. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Always leave them.
Thanks again to my guest, Mika Mokinen. I really enjoyed exploring these topics and I hoped it sparked an interest in you to go and dig about your own interests in science. You can totally Google it. Next up is my 50th episode, which is a really exciting milestone for me. This podcast started over a winter break a few years ago and has grown to be a very special and valuable journey for me. So thank you for listening. Bye.